1: It's a Tuesday edition of PFTPM. Miles Simmons actually back for a second straight day. We didn't scare you away yesterday, Miles. Good to see you again. You got the Browns helmet up there on the shelf. Browns, highly relevant to today's show. How's everything going?
2: Doing pretty well, Mike. I guess I didn't scare you away either because I'm back, as you just said.
1: Well, you're back and you've done a fine job so far. A great job, actually the few times you've been on the program. And this is a strange week, all because of Chris Sims. He had to have a week off. He needed a break <laughs> from the vacation that is his life. So the the entire operation got thrown into a tizzy. You've got different people in the morning. We've got different people at night. But, you know, we're at the point now where we've got enough different people who can do the job that I could either disappear and or drop dead and everything would keep rolling probably even more smoothly than it does with me, which is kind of a depressing thought. Let's get into some happy thoughts if you're a Cleveland Browns fan. I've got a niece, Miles, who's a huge Cleveland Browns fan, and she is on pins and needles over the possibility that J.J. Watt could join the Cleveland Browns. The news came today from Mary Kay Cabot of the Cleveland Plain Dealer that Watt is seriously considering the Browns. Now, my first thought when I saw that is, That's J.J.'s way of getting some of the teams he's truly interested in (laughs) to step up by saying, I'm about to sign with one of them. If one of you who really are on my list of teams to play for, like the Packers and the Steelers, if you really want to get this done, don't wait for the salary cap to be set. Let's go ahead and do this. But the Browns have that luxury because they have so much cap space. They could do this. They could do it without waiting for the cap to be set, Miles. And maybe if Watt wants some certainty, he decides not to wait until March 17, decides to pull the trigger now. If no one else wants to step up, join a team that's on the rise, join a team that's in his brother's division, both brothers, Derek and TJ playing for the Steelers. I'd be fascinated by the possibility of J.J. Watt on the Browns, especially when he's got two brothers on the Steelers.
2: Yes, and uh, you know what, I'll tell you what, Mike, and the reason I've got the Browns helmet behind me is because I'm a Cleveland native, but all this makes me think is, well, maybe the Browns isn't the Browns anymore, Juju Smith-Schuster, <laughs> because when you have somebody like J.J. Watt who is, you know, seriously considering signing with the Browns, this is actually something, and oh my gosh, look at that. Look at that 99 Oh, my goodness, and orange and brown and white. Look, it's not something that you would ever expect for the Browns that somebody of J.J. Watt's caliber could seriously consider going to Cleveland and that it actually could be taken seriously. Because in years past, if some free agent wanted to say, oh, yeah, I'm seriously considering going to Cleveland, the rest of the league would be like, all right, we'll enjoy football Siberia. That's not (laughs) what this is anymore. So if you're the Pittsburgh Steelers, and that's, if that's where J.J. Watt really wants to go, then yes, signing with Cleveland is an actual threat because it says to Pittsburgh, not only am I not going to sign with you, but I'm going to sign with somebody in your division. So if you actually want me, you better step it up right now.
1: It reminds me in a weird sort of way, and this actually may have happened before you were even born. This is going to be very depressing when I figure out this timeline, Miles. But it reminds me of Reggie White going to Green Bay to a lesser extent because J.J. Watt is not in his prime. J.J. Watt is not the player Reggie White was. That's not a slight. Not many guys are or ever will be the player that Reggie White was. But when Reggie White picked the Green Bay Packers, that gave the Packers a far different feel. And they were a team that had been in the wilderness in the 20 years after Vince Lombardi. They started in the late 80s to be relevant again with Don Mikowski, and they were just moving toward being a team that should be reckoned with, and then Reggie White shows up and the perception changed, the reality changed. Again, Watt's not going to have the same impact on the Browns that White would have on the Packers, but from the standpoint of the Browns actually being a serious player for J.J. Watt, it feels a little like Green Bay Packers' Reggie White-Light now, please tell me that you were alive when Reggie White signed with the Green Bay Packers.
2: Okay, as you are saying that, I did look it up, and I was alive, but do I remember this? Absolutely not, because I was about one and a half years old. So I was little baby, <laughs> oh, going to Browns games, and sitting in the dog pound with my mom and eating dog biscuits. But I, I think what you're saying is really interesting here, because if the Browns can get somebody of a J.J. Watt caliber, and then they pair him opposite somebody like a Miles Garrett, then I think you're right, Mike. It really does elevate what this Browns defense can be. It elevates what the perception of the Browns defense can be around the league as well, because even though they won a playoff game, I don't think anybody really thinks that the Browns had an elite defense last year. And especially when uh, Denzel Ward was out for them, or when Miles Garrett had to go out for a couple games with COVID, that defense just wasn't elite. So they need more pieces because they can be a really good unit. But if you have more guys like that, Mike, then I really think that they can take that next step and not just win one playoff game, but maybe win multiple playoff games.
1: Take a look at the Browns defenders who had multiple sacks in 2020 to give us an idea of where JJ Watt may fit in with that team. Obviously, Miles Garrett is the man. He had 12. Olivier Vernon, due to become a free agent with nine. Sheldon Richardson, four and a half. Adrian Claiborne, three and a half. Larry Ogunjoby, two and a half. Ogan Joby had his moments uh for the team. Um, but uh, uh more more so obviously Miles Garrett, the guy, the man the player around whom that defense is built. And when you have someone like that who demands extra attention, who's going to ultimately be the, the one you game plan to stop, it creates an opening for J.J. Watt to be, you know, the, the, the guy that has an easier path to the quarterback. And I also think the more pass rushers you have, the greater chance you have, frankly, to rotate in a healthy J.J. Watt and keep him off the field more frequently so you don't need him to go 100% of the snaps a game because we know it's a rough and tumble sport guys get injured especially in the trenches like that and I said this today I've got complete admiration for a player who knows full well when he gets his body to 100% he's going to go out on that field and something's going to break something's going to snap something's going to tear he's going to have to go back work to get back to 100%, and then go do it again. And it's this lather, rinse, repeat that becomes a guy's career. Pain, surgery, rehab, waiting, frustration, and just to go do it again and put yourself back at risk. And uh, with with a, a, a robust rotation, Miles, great opportunity for Watt to come out of a season without being as banged up as we've seen him in the past.
2: Yeah, and you know what this situation kind of reminds me of is what the Rams have done with guys with Aaron Donald. You pair somebody with Aaron Donald, and you know Aaron Donald is the one that's going to be Drawing the most attention from opposing offenses. So, then other guys like uh, Leonard Floyd this past year, he had a great season there playing alongside Aaron Donald. Dante Fowler, he's played alongside Aaron Donald for about a season and a half and he got to cash in with a pretty big payday there with the Atlanta Falcons. And now they may or may not be regretting that a little bit. Clay Matthews also signed with the Rams there in 2019 in order to have that sort of effect where it's like, all right, I can go there and I can be effective because teams aren't going to prepare for me like they're going to prepare for him. So I think if you're J.J. Watton, you know that you're also going to have Miles Garrett alongside you on that defensive line that can present you a lot of opportunities for somebody who's getting a little bit older, but has still shown that he can be effective in the right spots. And I think you're especially right there, Mike, with if he's in a good rotation and doesn't have to be out there all the time that could really make him effective.
1: Last year, the Browns, one of the teams pursuing Jadeveon Clowney, they ultimately didn't get him. He had zero sacks in eight games for the Titans. Now, remember, he's one of the guys who, even if he doesn't have sacks, he is a significant contributor in the the F-up-the-play, or as Calais Campbell calls it, the FSU F-stuff-up stat. Calais Campbell, a master of that as well. So the lack of stats doesn't show how disruptive Clowney can be. But what can be Clowney, and what can get can get disruption and Watt can get sacks and Watt can be a force. And the other thing Watt can do, is just going to generate excitement. It may generate too much excitement. You know, we saw the Browns miles in 2019. The bar was too high and they ran around under it all year long. In 2020, the bar was too low they exceeded it. They got to the playoffs. They got to the final eight. Now what's going to happen this year? The bar is going to be too high again, and if they get J.J. Watt, it's going to go even higher, and they're going to have a hard time living up to the dramatically increased expectations this year if they would get J.J. Watt. Even if they don't, they're going to have a hard time. They get Watt, the expectations get even higher.
2: Yeah, they get higher, but I think if you're the Browns, that's what you want. You want to be able to say, can I live up to the high expectations? And frankly, I think their leadership right now is in a much better position than it ever was in 2019 when they had Freddie Kitchens, who had ascended from running backs coach to offensive coordinator to head coach in a way that probably was too quick for everybody involved. And so I think with Kevin Stefanski who showed that he's a really good head coach, coach of the year, I mean, they won a playoff game, even though he was out with COVID. And I think that speaks to just how effective he's been as a leader in setting his team up for success. Andrew Barry, I think has done a really good job as the general manager for that team as well over the last year. So I think that they're set up to handle success, Mike, a lot better than they were in 2019 now for 2021.
1: We mentioned Jadavian Clowney going to the Titans last year. It reunited him with former Texans defensive coordinator Mike Vrabel, who's now the head coach of the Titans. JJ Watt, that same that same connection, that same link, that same possibility that he goes to the team that used to be the Houston Oilers and is now the Tennessee Titans. John Robinson, GM of the team, met with reporters earlier today. Here's Robinson acknowledging that there's been some discussion with JJ Watt's camp.
3: We've had some some contact. You know, it's it's you know it's early in the stages. I think you know he's having. uh, We obviously know his skill set and 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 what he's you know meant to meant to the Texans. um, Having played against him twice, um, the type of player he is. Uh, So we'll you know we'll just kind of see how it goes. Like a lot of these guys that you know that are coming available over the next uh, few weeks. You know, see kind of where. You know their interest is, and um, and then make a determination if it's you know if it's if it's an avenue that that hey we want to go down and, and and are we a fit you know potentially for some of these guys that become available
1: plenty of words ultimately saying nothing and he's either keeping his cards close to the vest or he's not really interested he's just being polite because he may have to play him again why say something gratuitous that would upset him like hey, he's too old we don't really want him he really doesn't fit he really isn't all that good i didn't get the impression that they're serious unless they're being very very careful not to drive up the market and not to force the issue prematurely and have him maybe sign with someone else who's got more money and again knowing what you will have under the cap is such a critical part of this even if you have cap space you need to know what the cap's going to be because you're going to have a budget you're going to have an idea of how much money you assign to this position that position that position and if you start spending more than you want to more than you should on a spot that J.J. Watt would fill on the roster it's going to make it harder for you to otherwise build out the team so you know, this comes down to how patient J.J. Watt's willing to be. He's seriously considering the Browns because maybe the Browns are the only team that's seriously making offers at this point. There isn't the land rush because of the salary cap issues. I just would be surprised and amazed if he ends up in Cleveland. I would be less surprised if he ends up with the Titans. Both teams, potential contenders. You know, the hard part about this, Miles, is it's it's impossible to know with any real certainty that that team you're signing up for has a clear shot at the Super Bowl too many issues too many factors too many variables go into a team's season all you can hope to sign with is a team that's north of the basic line of contention
2: Yeah. And I think at least with these two teams that we're talking about right now with Cleveland and with Tennessee, I think that they're both above that sort of line. And I think that's why, at least at this point, J.J. Watt can say, hey, I'm seriously considering signing with Cleveland. And people can take it seriously, as we were sort of discussing earlier. But I think the interesting thing about the Titans is that they need somebody to come in and help that defense. I mean, this was not one of the good defenses in the league, across the league. They were the worst defense on third down. They allowed about 52% of third down conversions to be completed. That's not something that you can sustain, I think, as a playoff contender and somebody that actually really wants to take it to the Super Bowl. And if you just continue to allow teams to stay on the field and stay on the field, that's going to prevent you from doing the things you want to do offensively as well. So the Titans really probably could use somebody like JJ Watt to help improve that defensive unit. But I think, like you said, there was a lot of just, well, you know, we might be interested and we've had discussions, but ah, la, la, la. It could happen. It could not happen. It depends. If they were really that interested, I don't know if John Robinson would have been able to contain himself more than he did. You know what I'm saying? It just, it didn't seem like it was all that serious.
1: Well, uh, he's going to land somewhere. We know that. There will be a market. It's not the kind of crazy land rush it would have been if he'd been available five years ago, but this guy's a three-time Defensive Player of the Year. He's got gas in the tank, and he brings leadership. He brings credibility. He's going to sell 99 jerseys as long as he goes to a team that doesn't have a guy who wears 99 or hasn't retired 99, and J.J. Watt is going to be uh, a force in 2021. All right. Um, one other team that is potentially pursuing J.J. Watt, although not officially, not through the front office, not through the coaching staff, but through a player, a former teammate from the Houston Texans, DeAndre Hopkins tweeted today on, or not tweeted on Instagram, posted on Instagram. You tweet on Twitter, you post content on Instagram. I'm still, I'm still learning this stuff. Let's finish what we started. Absolutely. And again, I love... This I'm thinking. Oh, it's a picture of J.J. Watt and DeAndre Hopkins from when they were with the Texans. I see that 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 uh, eight on the on the jersey, which was the tribute to to help me out, Miles. It was the defensive back, Larry. Larry, no, no, not Bidwell. Larry, the defensive back who passed this year, the Hall of Famer. We'll, we'll, We'll we'll get you. It's Larry Wilson. Larry Wilson. Wilson. He's got the Larry Wilson. And So that's, I was like, "Wait a minute! That's a mock-up again." What they're doing with Photoshop's is amazing. J.J. Watt in the Cardinals uniform, complete with the Larry Wilson tribute, hugging DeAndre Hopkins. I don't know that the Cardinals are in the cards, but uh, uh, they're on the they're on the. Uh, they're, they're right kind of on the line of contending team. They had a shot to make the playoffs this year. They're at least contending for a playoff spot. I don't know they're contending for a championship, and I don't know that having J.J. Watt would make the difference. But DeAndre Hopkins would very much like to get back together with his former teammate. And when you see the things said by guys like Hopkins, by guys like Deshaun Watson, that, that is an attraction because this is a guy – who's a key contributor. This is a guy who's a good teammate. This is a guy who you'll want on your team. What Watson tweeted last week after Watt was released, he's going to make any team better. And that's the key. These teams are trying to get better and the good teams are trying to become great teams. And maybe Watt can be the difference. But I, I, I look, until I hear something concrete that the Cardinals are interested, this is just a former teammate who would love to play with a guy that he used to play for.
2: Yeah, and I I think that J.J. Watt, like you said, would make anybody better, and I think he would certainly make the Cardinals better. The Cardinals' defense doesn't necessarily threaten me, I, I think, in terms of what they can really do and how good they can really be at this point. I think that they do need some more pieces, but at the same time, I'm not necessarily sure why J.J. Watt would really be interested in the Cardinals if he wants to be on a team that is ready to win a Super Bowl now. I don't really see the Cardinals as that. I think... They've been okay. you know. Even if they made it to the postseason, I don't know that anybody really would have picked them to win a game once they got there. Um, So Kyler Murray is good. I think we know that DeAndre Hopkins is great, but I think that they need some more pieces and they need to improve a lot more. And I don't think J.J. Watt is the missing piece for them in terms of contention and really being a Super Bowl contender either, Mike.
1: Yeah, I agree with you. Well, it's going to be fun to see how it plays out. And even though he's now had a... Four-day, four-day head start on the open market. It probably is going to take a little bit of time, primarily because we don't know what the salary cap is going to be. Usually, in a normal year, we have an idea what it's going to be. They tell the owners in December so the teams can start budgeting. Then they lock in the final number in February. We may not know, as Clark Hunt, the chief's owner and the chairman of the finance committee, said before the Super Bowl until hours before the start of the league year on March 17, what the cap is going to be. The Cardinals when it's time for the salary cap to be set we'll be looking to uh, save some money go a little younger Patrick Peterson due to become a free agent there was a report not that long ago that he's destined to move on he called it a dirty rumor well the dirty rumor is growing legs and this isn't a surprise it's just at the point where the time has come the Cardinals unlikely to sign Patrick Peterson he was a top 10 pick back in 2011 cornerstone of the defense 31 years old next season I expect him to go somewhere else, and whether he moves to safety, whether he you know, whether he can contribute at corner at the way that he has in the past, that all remains to be seen. I mean, plenty of guys have continued to perform at a high level as defensive backs beyond the age of 30, but uh, I think that he will be coveted, but again, we're back at the same problem the money may not be there. And I don't think Patrick Peterson currently is in that superstar category, Miles, that would cause a team to throw caution to the wind and say, we don't know what the hell the salary cap's going to be. We don't care. We have to go get Patrick Peterson.
2: Yeah, exactly. I don't think it's been like that for Patrick Peterson for the last few years. And he's still pretty, in effect. he's still pretty much an effective cornerback. I, I don't think that he's going to go somewhere and then he's going to fall off a cliff and then he's not going to be very good anymore. I think he can be a good veteran presence, can probably help train some of the younger defensive backs that you might have. You know, he still had uh, three interceptions, seven pass breakups there in the 2020 season. He played in all 16 games too. But I think when you're talking about it's time, this is Almost a little bit like J.J. Watt because he's been with the Arizona Cardinals for 10 seasons now. And, you know, the Cardinals did get kind of close to a Super Bowl there when Bruce Arians was still there a few years back. But other than that, the Cardinals just have been one of these teams where, yeah, they might be in it one year. But other than that, they're just kind of a very middling to almost bad team. So I think for Patrick Peterson, it's now maybe time for him to go to a team where he can say, yes, I really want to win and I really want to be the missing piece that puts this team over the top. I think he sort of does have the ability to do that. I don't think he's going to be, you know, three, four, five years ago, Patrick Peterson, but if he's the number two corner on your team, you're probably a pretty good team.
1: The Kansas City Chiefs have an underrated secondary, and they have a close friend of Patrick Peterson as a cornerstone of that secondary and Tyron Matthew. That would be an intriguing development if those two would reunite, but plenty of contending teams would be interested. And, hey, this is one of the benefits of becoming a free agent when you're in your early 30s and you've still got some gas in the tank like J.J. Watt, you can pick your destination and you can try to complete a career, cap it with a Super Bowl appearance and maybe a Super Bowl victory. The Denver Broncos are a very long way from their Super Bowl victory of five years ago, Miles, and they still keep trying to find a franchise quarterback. I kind of thought maybe they were onto something in Drew Locke one problem can't stay healthy. Other problem hasn't really developed. There's a report from the a uh, Troy Rank uh, media outlet in Denver that the Broncos will pursue a trade for Deshaun Watson if the Texans decide to trade him, and I I still don't know what the Texans are thinking. I don't know whether this is just a ruse to get people to offer more or whether they will hang up on the phone on anyone who calls. But if you're the Broncos and you're interested, you call them up and you make an offer and you see if they hang up the phone or they say, well, we'll get back to you on that. But uh, I, I think that it was flagged recently by someone that Deshaun Watson is one of the teams that, that, Watson, finds, that, that Watson finds the Broncos intriguing. Um, I don't know that I would frankly, given where they are right now. But if you get a franchise quarterback, maybe a team that that otherwise is on the wrong side of 500 and has been for the last several seasons, maybe that's the thing that makes that team into a contender, Miles.
2: Well, I think offensively, they do have some pieces, Mike, and that is maybe what is attractive to him. If you think about Cortland Sutton, I know he's coming off a big injury, but he's somebody that I think is really probably a good wide receiver that is good for that, uh, good for a quarterback at least. And then you also have somebody like Noah Fent. You have somebody else like Jerry Judy. Like Those guys are really good young pieces, and in theory, you could grow together with them if you're Deshaun Watson. Now, the other thing is, in theory, you should be able to grow together with those guys if you're Drew Locke. And I was one of those guys who saw Drew Locke play. I watched him in person when I was covering the Raiders. I think it was week 17 of 2019. And I'm like, man, this guy kind of has some traits. I think he can do things a little bit. And then he did kind of take that step back. In the 2020 season, you know he helped. Uh, he tied for the league lead in interceptions with 15, which is 15 fewer than they had in 2019 with Jameis Winston. Thank you for that, uh, Tampa Bay. But at the same time, I just think that if Deshaun Watson were actually interested in Denver, then that's something that could be good for him if. They also have those pieces because I don't know that Drew Locke can fully take advantage of them, Mike, with where he is right now in his development.
1: They definitely have the receivers. The defense is potentially good enough. I wonder whether or not Von Miller is even going to be on the team this year, but he wasn't on the team last year either because of injury. I, 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 I could see something there. The problem is, does what you have to give up to get Deshaun Watson make it harder to contend with Deshaun Watson on your team because you don't have those multiple first-round draft picks or you've given up a great young player who otherwise is going to be a cornerstone of your offense or your defense. So it's not going to be easy, even if the Texans decide, to try to solve this problem with Deshaun Watson by moving on. Let's move on to other topics after a break. Devin White was on FS1 earlier today. Some candid conversations about the Kansas City Chiefs the manner in which they handled the game plan against the Buccaneers' defense in the Super Bowl, and you'll want to hear what White had to say. We'll break that down next here on PFTPM.
0: Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see, so.
4: It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present of Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1 800 Gambler. Terms and conditions apply.
0: The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes!
4: And that's another thing like that we knew going in. We knew that they was gonna be a cocky team, which they have every right to be. They was the number one offense in the in the entire National Football League. But the thing is we knew they come block us. We knew that our front four was going to dominate them. So they did us a favor. They played right into our hands. We wasn't going to be that cocky team like, hey, we're going to play them in cover one. We're going to shut them down. Our best guys matched up on their best guys. We was going to make it be a team collective uh, win on defense, and that's what we did, man. So at the end of the day, they shouldn't even talk about not having their offensive tackles when they didn't even help them. They put them on islands by themselves right. with the best pass rushers in the game. So that, that's that's at their own fault.
1: Thanks to the folks at FS1 and Undisputed for the sound from Devin White. He was on with Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless today. And look you can call it like it is. You don't have your starting tackles. Well, don't go five-man protection 92% of the game. Miles, that's what happens. There is a certain amount of cockiness, a certain amount of arrogance, a certain amount of too much trust in the guy with the bad big toe that he's going to be able to run around all game long, 497 total yards run by Patrick Mahomes before throwing the ball or getting sacked, and it didn't work. It just didn't work. Maybe they should have kept a tight end in or kept someone in to block or just given, given more help to those five blockers than what they did because at the end of the day, it's pass fail and they failed.
2: Yeah, it, it, it is pass-fail. And the thing about it to me is that it's just not good strategy from a team that we're so used to seeing employ good offensive strategy. I mean, think about what they've done over the last few years with Patrick Mahomes at quarterback. You just – you rarely think about them, the Chiefs, having a bad game plan. I think we did kind of see it, though, a couple of times toward the end of this season. If you want to say with the Falcons game in Week 16, they only won 17-14 to 14 in that game – and the Falcons gave Patrick Mahomes all kinds of fits and then now we see it in the Super Bowl as well where Patrick Mahomes yes he made some outstanding incomplete throws but I think just from the standpoint of what was your offensive game plan if your offensive game plan is to leave basically your third right tackle who's actually your right guard that you have slid outside to tackle you leave him all alone most of the time and then you also leave your left tackle all alone most of the time and he's been playing right tackle for most of the season I just don't think that that's very good strategy and Mike that That's why you see the result that you see right there. It's just the way it was. It's the way that they failed.
1: Yeah, you're absolutely right. And we saw later in the year some issues with the Chiefs offensive line. Chris Sims pointed that out from time to time. Patrick Mahomes had to run more. And it could be that all that running is what caused that one bad step or just aggravation from too much running around. You get that ligament problem in your big toe He's since had surgery. He's got to recover from that. And maybe they shouldn't rely on him running around quite so much. That could be a problem for that team. They need to invest money, not just in the offensive line, but in the backups. You can't have a big drop-off. And when you have a quarterback, Miles, who, even though he's got $45 million in new money, the structure of that contract gives them a ton of flexibility in the early years, and the cap will keep going up to the point where, in the later years, it won't be a major percentage of the total spending limit. They need to divert some of that cap space to quality backups. That was the key for the New England Patriots when Tom Brady was taking less. Regardless of why he took less, when he was taking less, it allowed the Patriots to have a solid group of veteran backups who were making good money. And then you don't rely upon some undrafted free agent or six-round rookie to step up when someone gets hurt and hope for the best. That's what the Chiefs are going to need if they want to properly protect Patrick Mahomes. And they also need to take what the defense is giving them. They could have run the ball all day long, Miles. They chose not to. They chose to put it all on Patrick Mahomes and just hope. And this is where you get spoiled. As a team that gets used to having the quarterback who can pull the rabbit out of his hat, what happens? You keep expecting him to pull the rabbit out of his hat instead of coming up with a different plan because you just get so reliant on the idea that, ah, it's Patrick Mahomes. He'll eventually figure it out
2: right and it's interesting because i think so at certain points in the season we did see them start relying a little bit more on the run game i think against the bills earlier in that rescheduled game that I maybe got played on monday or tuesday night whenever it was that's when they ran the heck out of the football and we saw clyde edwards helaire he was really really effective that offensive line was blocking and now again that's a healthier offensive line but at the same time we've seen the chiefs employ different strategies in order to get things done but i think At the game's biggest stage, you do expect Patrick Mahomes to become Patrick Mahomes and just do what he's always seemed to do, like he did on that big third down in the Super Bowl last year. So... I think you get used to it. I think you do get kind of spoiled by it if you're the Chiefs. And frankly, Patrick Mahomes has never really had a bad game for all four quarters before. And I don't even know if you could really say he had a bad game for all four quarters in this particular Super Bowl. But he had a bad enough game that the Chiefs weren't able to get into the end zone at any point, Mike. And when that happens, yeah, you're going to lose to Tom Brady in the Super Bowl.
1: And, you know, we saw in Super Bowl thirty. Six, The first Super Bowl ever won by Tom Brady as a member of the New England Patriots. Bill Belichick put together a game plan that was premised on three down linemen, dropping a bunch of guys into coverage, daring Mike Martz, then the head coach of the Rams, to run the ball with Marshall Falk, and they didn't. They kept throwing into the teeth of that defense, and that ultimately allowed the Patriots to score one of the great upsets of all time. 14-point underdogs in the Super Bowl, and they won the game. Some similarities here when you consider that the Buccaneers having learned the hard way getting torched by the Chiefs offense in week 12 particularly in the first half of the game we're not going to let ourselves get burned down the field we're going to trust our front four to get home and the running opportunities were there if that's what the Kansas City Chiefs wanted to do and they just didn't and I keep wondering how much That distraction, inherent distraction and disruption from Britt Reid's car crash on Thursday night, just a couple of days before the Super Bowl, how much that affected final preparations. I know it would have affected it for me if it were my son and he were on my coaching staff and something like that happened. But whatever the explanation, Miles, we didn't see the kind of flexibility the Chiefs needed to try to turn that game into a win and not the loss that it was.
2: Yeah, and one of the most interesting parts about that that Devin White quote to me uh, was that he was saying that, you know, they're a cocky team, and that almost sounded like a compliment to me. And cocky is not usually something that you think of as a compliment, but what he was saying is like, look, they've earned the right to be cocky. And then he said, we didn't basically because we learned from what we experienced in going against the Chiefs in November. And we weren't just going to play high cover one and try to say we're going to man everybody up and do all that because basically it, it did not work before. You know, Tyreek Hill had 203 yards in the first quarter in that game. So when something like that happens, you have to be humble enough to learn from it. And they employed a different strategy. They had a fantastic game plan, and they executed it extremely well. And so because of that, the Buccaneers are Super Bowl champions because, look, when you learn something from going against a team at one point, Mike, the definition of insanity is trying to do the same thing and expecting a different result. The Buccaneers didn't do that, and that's why they got that different result in Super Bowl 55.
1: The draft is coming up in just a couple of months. We're going to have a draft here on PFTPM where we look at the biggest steals and the biggest busts based on one year after the 2020 draft. We'll be back with more right after this. Jessica Pagula, the daughter of Bills owners Terry and Kim Pagula, advanced to the women's quarterfinals of the Australian Open recently. After her win, she signed the camera. Go Bills, go Sabres. Tonight, she looks to advance to the semifinals in Melbourne. So good luck. To Jessica Pagula later tonight. Those Australian Open games happen a long time after I've gone to bed. Here's John Robinson from earlier today talking about a bust from 2020 in Isaiah Wilson.
3: Do we we did a them? lot of work uh, a year ago um, leading up to selecting him. Um, you know the evaluation process, uh, talking to you know different sources, visiting with him countless numbers of times, and um, for whatever reason. You know, the, the, the player that this, this fall was here in Nashville wasn't the guy that, was, um, that we spent time with last year. Um, so I think, you know, he's going to have to make a determination um, if he wants to do everything necessary to play pro football. Um, and, and, and that's going to be, you know, on him.
1: Played in one game last year as the team's first-round pick. A couple of stints on the COVID-19 reserve list, some things that weren't really all that smart on his part by way of conduct in connection with the pandemic and uh one of the so far so far look there's still plenty chapters left in every book for every player that was drafted last year miles but it inspired by those comments from isaiah wilson what we're going to do we're going to do we're going to go back and forth with one steal and one bust so far this is not the definitive final word on the players we're not Putting anyone in the Hall of Fame, we're not putting one anyone in the fan-controlled football league with Johnny Manziel. So one steal, one bust, back and forth. Miles, you're up first.
2: Okay. Well, I'm glad that you you know you presented that in the way that you did because obviously these things are subject to change after only one season, but. I think that so far, the steal of the 2020 draft has been Rams safety Jordan Fuller. Now, this guy was a sixth-round pick, but he ended up starting 12 games for the Los Angeles Rams. He had three interceptions. He had five pass breakups. He picked off Tom Brady twice in November. The cool thing about that was he is also the 199th pick in the draft, just like Tom Brady. So I think that would be a thrill for anybody who is as young as Jordan Fuller and has basically been alive as long as. Tom Brady has been playing football and winning Super Bowls. So that's one thing that's pretty cool for him. Uh, my first bust would then be Henry Ruggs, wide receiver for the Las Vegas Raiders. And a it's because bust. he's an overall pick. Yeah, a bust. Right. That's what I'm saying. Right. Look, you this- so far, Mike. What else am I supposed to say? He was the first <laughs> wide receiver off the board. He only had 26 catches for 452 yards. Man, that's not that's bust material after one year, if just I think. Especially if you compare him to J- uh, Justin Jefferson, who had 1,400 yards receiving. Look, I think that Henry Ruggs has a chance to grow and develop. But look, if you if you're looking at his production. In the first season? No, it's not what you expect from the guy who was the first wide receiver taken off the board. And especially when he's in somebody's offense like John Gruden, and John Gruden is known as the offensive guru, he needs to be better. And that is why I think, at least for year one, he is a bust. Mike, who are your first busts and- in since- season?
1: Well, and let me just say this about being a first-round receiver, especially the first receiver off the board in a draft that has plenty of great receivers. It adds extra pressure, and I agree with you, Henry Ruggs did not perform to the level that we would expect of the first guy taken off the board in a receiver-rich draft. My first steal, guy you've already mentioned, Justin Jefferson with the Vikings rookie receiving yardage record. He was not the first. He was not the second. He was not the third. May have been the fourth receiver off the board. There may have been another one in there by the time the Vikings had a chance to take him. I know he was behind Ruggs, Jerry Judy. No, C.D. Lamb and, and Jalen Rieger. So he was at least the fourth one off the board or at least the fifth one off the board, my math, I just admit that my math sucks. Fifth one off the board, Justin was the Jefferson was right. awesome. He was awesome last year, and they didn't really discover what they had in Justin Jefferson until week three. He could have had a couple of additional games where he could have ended up with 1,600, 1,700 yards as a rookie Miles, So he was great as a steal for the Vikings in the 20s. He should never have been on the board in the 20s in hindsight. My first bust, hey, if you're going to go with a guy who was taken 11th overall, is that what he was? Was he 11th? Is that what it was? I think so, Was it 11th? It was between 10 and 15. 12th. 12th. I'll go with the guy who was 5th overall. I think based on what we've seen so far, too. I love Tua. I love you, Tua. But Joe Burrow, awesome. Justin Herbert taking one spot after Tua. Awesome. So far, I mean, when, when you need a relief pitcher, this is not baseball. When you need a relief pitcher multiple times, when you supposedly are the guy, and they have to bring in Ryan Fitzpatrick to pull the cookies out of the fire, that's not an endorsement of a guy's overall potential or where he currently is. So, I, I look, Tua can turn into a Hall of Famer based on what we've seen so far. I don't think he's on track to make it to Canton.
2: Oh, well, no, he definitely is not on track, and he was also on my list, so that means I'm going to have to take somebody else. Uh, But, okay, I'm going to go with another steal right here that is honestly right up the alley that you were just there, and that's Justin Herbert. Because, really, if you're looking at a quarterback and this guy was picked one spot after Tua – And he looks like he probably could be the best player picked in this particular draft. That's a steal when you get him at sixth overall. And man, I'm telling you, I look at Justin Herbert and I see somebody that can really be one of these top QBs. And it's going to be fun to see what these guys in the AFC West can do and can compete. Imagine if that trade actually does happen with the Broncos and Deshaun Watson. And you've got Patrick Mahomes, Justin Herbert, Deshaun Watson Dirt car all in the same division in the AFC West. That could be one of the most fun divisions, I think, in football. And then I'll, I'll stay in the top 10 with my next bust. And part of this is because of injury. But again, we're only one season in here. That's going to be Jeff Okuda, the uh, the cornerback from the Detroit Lions, picked at number three overall. And you know, like I said, he was hurt. He missed the last bit of the season. But when he was out there, he just didn't look like a number three overall pick. And you've even got the new coaches there, whether it's defensive coordinator Aaron Glenn, head coach Dan Campbell there in Detroit. They're all saying, man, we got to get Jeff Okuda playing with some more confidence. You shouldn't need that as a th- as the third pick in the draft and as a cornerback. You gotta have that stuff inherently. So, again, he can become somebody who's great at cornerback, and maybe that's all he needed was a change of coaches, Mike. But I think at least for right now, he's a bit of a bust at number three overall from the twenty twenty draft.
1: And they drafted Okuda with the third overall pick because Matt Patricia alienated Darius Slay right out of the gates and had to trade him, so it became a need pick at number three instead of best on the board. Best on the board at three was Justin Herbert. I can't say Washington should have taken Justin Herbert instead of Chase Young. That That's, that's six of one, half a dozen of the other. I wouldn't be upset if they had taken Justin Herbert because it's a more important position, but pass rusher is just a half step below quarterback when it comes to importance and quarterback plays longer that's why you get a franchise quarterback you 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 take him you run with him and you keep him as long as you can but at at the absolute latest 3 should have been the first spot At four, the Giants should have taken him instead of Andrew Thomas, and you trade Daniel Jones just like the Cardinals traded Jeff uh, or Josh Rosen, excuse me, and then obviously Tua at five. That's going to torment Dolphins fans, and Dolphins fans get very defensive about this. Like it's okay for them to be tormented; it's not okay for us to say they should be tormented, but they should be tormented, and they likely are tormented by the fact that the Dolphins took Tua instead of Justin. Herbert. All right. Next one's for me here. Got to get my notes. Don't want to make any mistakes. I got to go. Well, I'm going to I'm going to sandbag one. I'm going to go chase Claypool with my next one. And chase Claypool fits a very important profile for me when it comes to receivers who become successful in the NFL. I think that a receiver sliding into round two is a valuable mindset. It's a valuable motivator. It's a valuable chip on the shoulder. Michael Thomas, still driven by the fact that he was a second-round pick. You know, you can very easily slip into that diva mentality as a receiver when you're a first-round pick. You don't work as hard. You've arrived. When you're a second-round pick and you feel like you've been slighted, you feel like you've been overlooked, you feel like you've been dissed in some way, that lights a fire that may never go out. And I think we saw some of that with Chase Claypool. No way he should have lasted as long as he did on the board. And I think one of the reasons he was so good last year is because he did last on the board as long as he did. Flip it over to bus territory. Hey, I got to do it. I got to do it. Now, look, I understand that that they, they did it for a strategic reason that may have been light of fire under Aaron Rodgers. But I'm sorry, you used a first-round pick with a 13-3 team that made it to the NFC Championship. You gave up a fourth-round pick to move up to get him, and he never played in a game all year. Jordan Love, based on what we've seen so far, was a waste of a pick by the Green Bay Packers. And if I'm a Packers fan, and again, they don't want me saying it, but they'll say it to themselves – tormented by what could have been if they'd had that first round pick and fourth round pick two different players two different lottery tickets on guys who would have had 18 games under their belts by the time they played in the NFC championship and would have been on the field barring injury contributing to the Green Bay Packers cause so nothing against Jordan Love he may end up being a Hall of Famer we don't know but it was a bust of a pick to use that first round pick and a fourth to go get him Miles.
2: Yeah, you said based on what we've seen so far, it's absolutely nothing. I've we have no nothing. idea because he didn't even play in a preseason game because we didn't have him uh, because of the pandemic. And imagine if they would have had T. Higgins, you know, that's somebody who would have been there on the board. Another good young wide receiver. Uh, all right, my next steal, I'm going to go with another guy who was picked lower on in that draft. That's Legarius Sneed from the Kansas City Chiefs. A guy who was a fourth round pick. He started six regular season games there for the Chiefs and then all of their postseason games. But I think he showed some really good versatility. And that's something that you want out of somebody who's picked in those lower rounds and can actually contribute for you on the team he had two sacks he had three interceptions in the regular season he had seven pass breakups and he had a pair of sacks in the postseason too so i think when you're talking about these guys who are young who can show things on defense like that versatility you talk about positionless players sometimes that's what some defensive coordinators and head coaches in the league like to talk about i think he's one of these guys that can really help this defense continue to take those steps and be one of of these teams. That's not just going to be contending because of Patrick Mahomes. They've got to have some good defensive pieces too. And I think he is one of those guys. And then for my last bust, I'm going to go with Jalen Rigor. All right. So this is another one of these first round wide receivers and he was picked just one spot ahead of Justin Jefferson, but didn't have a game with more than 55 yards. And I think definitely some of this has to do with the QB and the QB problems that Philadelphia had throughout the entire season, but his top receiving yardage output was 55 yards. And that came in week one when he only had one catch. So When you're talking about a first-round wide receiver, you want more production than that. It's very similar to me with Henry Ruggs. You just didn't necessarily see it with Rigor. He had 31 catches, 396 yards in 11 games. I just think that especially when you see what Justin Jefferson did a pick later and who knows what Justin Jefferson would have done if he was playing with Carson Wentz and Jalen Hurts in 2020. But I just think right now, if you're an Eagles fan, you're disappointed in the output that you got there from that pick at 21 overall, Mike.
1: Those are good selections, and Jalen Rieger was on my list as well. My last steal has got to be a guy who wasn't even drafted. I mean, that counts as a steal. If all the picks went by and his name was never called and you go get him as an undrafted free agent, that's James Robinson, who walks off the street with no offseason program, no preseason to prove himself, wins the starting tailback job, and was awesome as a rookie, and now with Trevor Lawrence likely to be the new quarterback in Jacksonville, James Robinson in position to really flourish because they'll have a passing game to balance out the running game where Robinson was pretty much all that team had last year. So I I think James Robinson was a great, great choice by the Jaguars and hopefully the new coaching staff will have the same faith in him that the last coaching staff did. And my, last bust i gotta go with justin Rohrwasser, the fifth round kicker i can't believe the patriots pissed away sorry london a draft pick on a kicker don't why is anybody look unless it's ray guy or sebastian janikowski why are you using a draft pick on a kicker and then on top of it there was some stuff some controversial stuff about Rohrwasser in the three percenters group and i didn't know the tattoo. B- baloney bs and it was a waste of a pick by the new england patriots miles
2: oh it absolutely was and that was embarrassing what he said oh i didn't know what this tattoo meant. come on man if you're putting something on your body permanently i think you probably have a good idea of what it means after you get to a certain age especially when you're in high school i don't i don't believe you when you start talking about it oh i don't i didn't know i had no idea give me a break
1: my first tattoo and last tattoo if i ever get one will be kirk cousins if and when he wins the super bowl mvp award which uh i don't have to worry about finding a tattoo parlor that can do a likeness of kirk cousins anytime soon all right quick uh, look at the results here before we take our break miles had his his steals jordan fuller justin herbert and Lajarius sneed i had uh well miles bust he has henry ruggs jeff akuta and jalen rieger then for my picks Steals Justin Jefferson, Chase, Claypool, James, Robinson all offense for me and then Tua Bailoa, Jordan Love and Justin Rohrwasser. Let's open the mailbag. We'll be back with more PFTPM right after this. Happy birthday, Jerome Bettis, the Hall of Fame running back, 49 years old today. Got that Super Bowl win in 2005, played in Detroit. Miles, did you know that Jerome Bettis was from Detroit? My God, that was one of the most overplayed storylines of any Super Bowl in the history of all 55 of them. You get to a Super Bowl, you have job security. You don't get to a Super Bowl, you don't get to the playoffs. You have a potential for a hot seat situation. First question today from Friedrichs J.K., which head coaches do you think will be on the hottest seats entering 2021? The first two that jumped out to me, Zach Taylor of the Bengals, because I think they were thinking about making a move on Zach Taylor this year. There was talk that they were. They came out and had a statement the day after the season ended. We're not firing our coach. When does that ever happen? And then Mike Zimmer in Minnesota. I think if they fail to make the playoffs for the second straight year, I think that's when the Vikings consider – paying the check, writing out and writing off the expense of the buyout and moving on. Those are a couple that come to mind for me, Miles. Any thoughts from you?
2: Yeah, I, I think that those two are definitely correct. At some point, Mike Zimmer's got to get over the hump, right? And that that just seems to me the one thing that they really haven't done is consistently get to the place where they really need to get to when it comes to the playoffs. I mean, they're in it, they're out of it. They're in it, they're out of it. Um, so that, that one definitely rings true. And then Zach Taylor, obviously, he should be on the hot seat after barely winning any games. But then two that come to mind for me are Matt Nagy um, of the Chicago Bears because another guy that it seemed like the – Chicago was thinking about it and then probably making the playoffs maybe backed off the Chicago management from really executing that move um, because they were another team that kind of came out and they really said look we're not firing this guy right now and they even had a little press conference and were questioned about it a lot and basically said well other than winning you know he's done a really good job and it's like well wait a minute isn't winning the thing that you need to do <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other name I would think about is Vic Fangio for the Denver Broncos because they just really have not done anything um, with Vic Fangio there. I mean, and they need to get over whatever it is that has been hampering them as a franchise since they won the Super Bowl there not Peyton Manning's last stand. So I think those are the two names that come to mind for me, Mike.
1: And a new general manager in Denver who very well may have the full keys to the car next year as John Elway slides away. This was a fall upward for Elway into this promotion. He was out as general manager. He's under contract for one more year. He's still going to be around, but it's George Payton's show moving forward. And if Fangio doesn't get it done, Payton goes out and hires somebody from that list he's been carrying around for years of coaches he would like to work with at some point when he gets the chance. I think another name to watch, although I don't think he's going to get fired, John Gruden, any other coach with his performance the last three years would be on the hot seat going into 2021, but we know Mark Davis is not going to fire his buddy, John Gruden. And also look, I, it, the way the Steelers fell apart and they're going to have struggles this year. And I don't think Mike Tomlin is going to be on the hot seat. I think the Steelers have, have allowed the fact that they've had three coaches since 1969 to become so much of their identity that they're never going to fire a coach again. And they're going to stretch. They're going to try to stretch this out as long as they can. And they could they can have Mike Tomlin as a head coach for 20 more years. It could be three coaches uh, for, for 70 years of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and, and I think that, that it's going to take a lot before the Steelers would make a move at head coach because I think they love the stability and they've allowed it to become part of who they are, Miles.
2: Well, yeah, for sure. I mean, basically, I've had two coaches in my entire lifetime, which is a bit ridiculous when you think about it, uh, especially considering, you know, teams that turn overhead coaches like the one that I grew up rooting for in Cleveland. So I think that you're probably right. They have let that become so much of their identity that they might not get rid of Mike Tomlin. However... Mike Tomlin has not had a losing season as a head coach. So right. I think when you factor that into it, they are one of the most stable franchises in all of sports for a reason. I don't know that unless things really, really fall off the wagon, that Mike Tomlin even should be on the hot seat, Mike.
1: Hey, they they stuck with Bill Cowher through three straight non-playoff years, and I think all three were losing seasons. At least one or two of them were, so that's a great point. And Mike Tomlin has done well. The question is, how much better should he have done with the talent that he's had? He's had Ben Roethlisberger and plenty of talented receivers and other players, but, but hey, Steelers like to have that continuity. One quick one on the way out the door. Mike Dow, one Got to get the Twitter handle right. With the seventeenth, Will the 17th game be an extra home game for half the teams and an away game for the other half, or will the extra game be at a neutral site? When the 17th game happens, there will be half the teams with nine games at home one year and the other half with eight, And some of those teams with nine will have a neutral site game, but they're not going to have a full slate of 16 neutral site games, at least not yet. So there will be an imbalance, Miles. Some teams will have nine home games, and that creates just enough of a little bit of a strategic edge that it may be the difference between a playoff berth and going home when the season ends. We're going to go home until tomorrow. We're already home. See you tomorrow. Have a great day.